Hey guys, as you know, the official beard company of the American History Podcast is Fable Beard Company. And right now, they've got some great new products for your beard with some amazing limited time seasonal scents. What says summertime more than lemonade and gum powder? You heard that right. Their newest scent is called The Refresher, and it has a scent profile that is, wait for it, gunpowder and lemonade. Seriously, I've tried it, and it's now my go-to beard oil product. I love this one. They have it in beard oil, butter, and of course, their fantastic all-in-one beard wash and conditioner. Now, of course, July is the month of independence, and we have the Patriot. This one features a blend of southern pecan pie, fresh berries, creamy vanilla, and light musk. As they say, this one smells like sunshine and freedom. Now, for the ladies in the audience, they've got products for you as well. The Enchantress is just the thing for you. It comes in hair oil and body lotion, just to name two. The scent profile features a blend of creamed peach, sparkling pear, lavender, and orange flowers. My wife loves this one, and I'm sure you will too. Now, head over to fablebeardcompany.co and use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of this show. Remember, that's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, and the number 15. Now let's get back to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 3, Japan and the Early 20th Century. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole. Welcome, friends, listeners, Patreons, to episode three. Now, last time, we spent some time going over Meiji Japan and the opening up of Japan by Commodore Dewey. We spoke about the effects of the opening, including the new constitution in the late 19th century. Finally, we discussed the idea that the point of the Meiji political system was to blindfold the population as the oligarchy drove the country down a path they, the people, may not have otherwise chosen. Thus, we saw the censorship of media throughout Japan. So with that being said, let's go back to Japan in the late 19th and early 20th century. To help us do that, we have the Song of the Week, which is We'll Dance Until Dawn by Gus Arnheim and his orchestra featuring Catherine Crawford. We'll see you on the other side. Oh 
And last time we left off talking about censorship, and that is where I want to pick up the conversation today. In 1925, the Ministry of Home Affairs issued regulations for the motion picture industry. One of the things they were on the lookout for, um, or they wanted to ban or heavily censored, was any film that carried an anti-war message. Now, one such film was a 1930 film, All Quiet on the Western Front. Even if this film had nothing to do with Japan, it made no difference. The film about the German army in the First World War was thematically against the idea of war. Thus, it was heavily censored, especially scenes, for example, which showed war-weary soldiers in trenches suffering from fatigue or any scene which depicted battlefield carnage. The government was certainly not interested in allowing people to see the reality of modern industrial age warfare. Now, in the years before war broke out in Asia, the sad reality for Japan was the only group that came out against war um, was the Japanese communists. Needless to say, this was unacceptable and the government outlawed the party and jailed its leadership. But this move against the communists was part of a broader persecution by both police and prosecutors to use summary powers to arrest and detain any and all political activists, especially those with anti-government views. The government's aim, and they were quite successful in achieving it, was to crush freedom of expression, pacifism, and anti-militarism through the use of internal security laws. This is fairly typical of totalitarian regimes in the early 20th century. Whether it was Imperial Japan, Fascist Italy, or Nazi Germany, the standard operating procedure was to crack down on anyone who had any thoughts that went against the grain. And, in order to ensure they could indoctrinate the people into supporting the militancy of the government, they created a powerful weapon, a national education system. Now, from the start, the Meiji government set out to build a modern school system. But, in the beginning, at least as far as I can tell, the point wasn't actually indoctrination. It wanted to promote intellectual openness about the West and spread the knowledge gleaned from it to the people. Many of the textbooks contained the entirety of Western political and legal doctrines, things such as natural law, the rights of the individual, and political plurality, the very ideas that underlie Western civilization. However, this openness ended fairly quickly, believe it or not. In 1880, the government created a list of books that were favorable to democracy and then promptly banned them. Furthermore, it abandoned the policy of encouraging intellectual curiosity and instead focused on promoting Confucian, feudal virtues. At first, schools simply had to notify the government of what textbooks they were using. Then it changed to where the government required the schools to obtain approval before they adopted a text. By 1886, a textbook certification system was implemented. Books would not be adopted unless they were certified by the Ministry of Education. Of course, I wonder, what were Japanese being taught to believe and honor? Anti-democratic statist values were the order of the day. The educational system promoted an emperor-centered absolutist constitution that was imposed from above, as opposed to a democratic political system with a constitution that guaranteed the rights of the individual. The emperor, rather than the head of state, was what the Japanese called both Kojiki and Nihon Shoki, a deity who should be worshipped. And I hope I didn't butcher those terms too much. Education was used to indoctrinate the people into total submissiveness to the emperor and the political authorities he presided over. Now, I want to diverge for just a few minutes and look at 20th century totalitarian regimes in general and compare them briefly to previous ones. Now, first, there is a difference between totalitarian regimes, such as what was constructed in Japan, and, say, a conservative or authoritarian regime, 
such as that in Russia under Peter the Great. Now I can hear you saying, what's the difference? Conservative authoritarian regimes were a traditional form of anti-democratic government found in Europe in the early modern period. Regimes such as that of Louis XIV, the aforementioned Peter the Great, and Austria under Clemens von Metternich. The goal of such a regime was to simply prevent major changes from undermining the existing social order. Most people went about their lives and were much more concerned with local affairs than national affairs. This is because the former directly affected them much more than the latter. Popular participation was either limited or forbidden. Then we have the 20th century version of the totalitarian state. This stood in stark contrast to the old school authoritarians. How? Well, here people were expected to participate in the system and actively support the government and its policies. A totalitarian state was far more able to keep track of citizens and their actions thanks to new technology such as the radio, automobile, and telephone. They could tap your phone lines or bug your home and spy on you. They could use modern communication equipment to communicate with local officials. Finally, they could use things like the radio and eventually the TV to engage in propaganda campaigns. Hey guys, are you enjoying this episode on history and economics? Are you looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, the next level of the American History Podcast can be found at Liberty Classroom. This site is awesome, and it's perfect for parents who have homeschool kids or even adults who are simply lifelong learners. Go to the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com, click on the linked picture on the sidebar, and you'll be ready to join. You'll find courses on, of course, history, but also economics, Latin American history, literature, rhetoric, and more, all of which are taught by fantastic professors I know and trust, people like Tom Woods, graduate of both Harvard and Columbia, as well as others like Robert Murphy, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbner, and many other great scholars. Seriously, this is a fantastic site. If you're looking to finally learn the things they didn't teach in high school, but should have, unless I was your teacher, of course, this is the place for you. Again, be sure to enter the site via the link on our website, and we'll get a small finder's fee. It's a win-win for you and the show. Now back to the program. Now, before we get back to specifically discussing Japan, I want to talk about the tools of the totalitarian state, and there are three of them. Censorship, indoctrination, and terrorism. Virtually no freedom of the press existed. The press was an organ of the state. The purpose of education was not to create free thinkers, but to create loyal citizens and demonize enemies of the government. Lastly, failure to comply meant imprisonment or death. Okay, so back to Japan. The point of all this was to create citizens who would enthusiastically support government policies and programs and inculcate a willingness to die for the country in a time of war. The next step was to indoctrinate the population into a militaristic fanaticism, which began actually during the Russo-Japanese War. The war and patriotism were stressed in every subject in school. So here's an example. In the ethics course, teachers were supposed to discuss, quote, the meaning of the imperial edict declaring war, the imperial edict on the course of the war, the exploits of valiant Japan and our valiant military men, end quote. You get the picture. The entire curriculum was militarized. The impact of this war was apparent quite early on. Here is what one third grade student at the time wrote, quote, I will become a soldier and kill Russians and take them prisoner. I will kill more Russians, cut off their heads, and bring them back to the emperor. I will charge into battle again, cut off more Russian heads, kill them all. I will be a great man, end quote. You could also say the evidence 
that it worked is that approximately every decade going forward, Japan was involved in a war to one extent or another. First, the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 through 1905, then World War I, then war in China in the 1930s, and of course the Pacific War against the United States in the 1940s. The system was slightly more mm, liberal in the years immediately after World War I, but by 1925 that had ended. In that year, active duty military officers were assigned to every school from middle school up, and military training was a regular part of the curriculum. Then in 1926, a four-year program was implemented nationwide, which saw the opening of youth training centers in every city, town, and village. Every male student whose education ended at the elementary level was to have 400 hours of military instruction. Thus, if you went on to higher education or immediately um, went to work after elementary school, all were caught up in the program. The effect of this is that the military training planted jingoistic ideas in the people and gave them a mindset towards wanting to go to war. Academic freedom for teachers was not recognized, and all education was standardized under the central control of the Ministry of Education. Parents nor teachers had any say in any of this. From pre-K through high school, children were taught what to think and how to think. Now, just a moment ago, I gave you one example from a writing by a third grader. Here's part of a transcript from a 1932 roundtable discussion in the aftermath of what is known as the Manchurian Incident. And never fear, we will discuss that in a future episode. Interviewer, what is the Manchurian Incident all about? Cato, the Chinese insulted us and our soldiers are fighting them in Manchuria to avenge it. Interviewer, the League of Nations has been making quite a fuss recently. What do you think of the League? Cato, it's a place where the cowards of the world get together to talk. Interviewer, if you were a foreign minister, what would you do? Nakajima, the League of Nations is biased, so I wouldn't have anything to do with it. Interviewer, do you think there will be a war between Japan and America? Fukazawa, yes, I think so. Americans are so arrogant. I'd like to show them a thing or two. Cato, they act so big all the time. If they need a good beating. I'd annihilate them. End quote. Now, I didn't mention it earlier, but these are elementary children who were on this discussion panel. And, of course, they were not in school 24-7, so their minds and values were shaped by their family life and the propaganda they either read or heard on the radio. One of the many ultranationalist articles dating to this period was titled, quote, The Future War Between Japan and America, end quote. Now, a question that pops into my mind is just how far down into society did this indoctrination penetrate? In other words, did it take? As a teacher, I know there is a lot of what I teach that goes in one ear and out the other, especially things like how to formulate an argument, you know, how to support that argument, etc. So my question is, did it take? Historian Saburo Ayanaga notes that two strata of Japanese society apparently did not fully accept this. Those who were highly educated at elite schools and imperial universities was one group. The other were those men with little to no formal education. Hence, a supermajority of the population was conditioned by the public education system to accept military discipline. Now, one of the things all of this makes me think about 
is the link between the military and the state. Early in the Meiji period, the military was under the authority of the Council of State. In Japan, there was no separation of civil and military affairs. Then, in 1878, the creation of a general staff led to the army ministry, which was separate from the normal government. In other words, the Supreme Command was totally independent. That independence was not changed in the new constitution of 1889. That document might have created a parliament, but departments that acted in the name of the emperor, such as the army, did not need deed approval for anything. And of course, the supreme command and the right to decide the size of the military all fell under the emperor's executive power. Article 11 said, quote, The emperor has the supreme command of the army and navy. End quote. Article 12 stated that the emperor determines the size of the army and the navy. So who is exactly or who exactly was the supreme commander? Well, that's the emperor. He was supported by the general staff of the army and the navy, as well as various advisory functionaries. There was no civilian control of the military as we have in the United States. Sure, the president is the commander-in-chief, but he's a civilian, elected by the people. In Japan, civilian control was never allowed. Had there been such a check, perhaps World War II in the Pacific would have been avoided. Eventually, these men retired or died, and at that point, political parties became a powerful force in Parliament, which led to friction between them and the Supreme Command. The parties and the politicians might be responsible to the people, but events and the reactions to them, um, those were decided by the military, who answered to no one in the civilian government. Okay, now this is a little bit of a short episode. That's all I've got for today. We're going to break this one up. Next time, which is tomorrow, we will explore more deeply the mindset of the Japanese military. If you all enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us. There are several ways to do this. Um, first, you can join the Patreon. And for as little as $5 a month, you'll have access to bonuses only available to Patreons, including the Patreon-only series 1983, the year the world almost ended, as well as other goodies. Now, for $10 a month, you get access to that plus Quagmire in the Middle East, which is about the United States' um, war in the Middle East that's been going on since about 1979 or so. The URL is www.patreon.com slash American History. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can support the show by patronizing our sponsors or by going to www.buymeacoffee.com slash Sean and directly contribute to the show. And if you're into the whole cryptocurrency thing, um, and of course I am into crypto as well, and you want to send me crypto, feel free to just shoot me an email and I'll tell you how you can do that. Until next time, I'm Sean. This is the American History Podcast, and I'll see you all next time. Shut it off, Robert. Oh, please, wait till I get it. Wait a minute.